Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. And welcome to my independence report. It is a Wednesday afternoon, and we have the uh, grand pleasure of of interviewing or re-interviewing a young lady that was with us a couple weeks back. And uh, <laughs> and it was my fault, Julie. I apologize. It was truly my fault. But we're talking with Julie, and I'm going to try and say it, Ginaloni. Uh, very good. Well, you said gin, so I can figure that part out. Uh, Julie Ginaloni Connor. And she's an author. Uh, she's written several books. She's also traveled the world. And she also is a diplomat. And uh, we talked about that in depth uh, the last time she was here. And so we're not going to talk about that because we want to talk about the book she's written. And as, after her career as a diplomat was over. So uh, we'll talk about that. And you can reference her in a previous uh, uh, My Independence Report that was a couple of weeks back. So if you want to find out more about the diplomatic corps, it really was a very interesting discussion. But we're going to talk about something else today. And we're going to talk to Julie right now. Julie, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Uh, how are you, Kevin? I'm awesome, thank you. I just had a great interview. I'm having another one right now, and it's just awesome that uh, I, I, I'm the luckiest guy on the face of the earth, I got to tell you. Well, I guess it would be an ideal job for an extrovert. Uh, as a former <laughs> diplomat, I'm supposed to be an extrovert, but I'm not. Well, but you you do it through your writing, though. So so you... you uh, you you connect to people. See, I can't I can't put two words together on a piece of paper to save my life, uh, but you can you can put it together and you can write well and and stuff. And we're going to talk about your two books, um, which is the first one is Savoring the Camarino de Santiago. Hey, I actually even said that okay. Camino. Um, and it's a pilgrimage, not a hike. And let's talk about because a lot of people don't know what the. Uh, um, Camarino de Santiago actually is. What is well, it? Kevin, I can tell you're not a Spanish speaker. Camino, which is a Spanish word for path or road or way. It's a car. It's a Camino. It's a road. So the Camino de Santiago is the road to Santiago. What did and I say? Camarino? That's what I said. Camino. Like yeah. the old car. Yeah, the Camino. It's yeah. The, so um, the Camino de Santiago is a pilgrimage route that's been around since 822 or 824, depending on which scholar you believe. And so pilgrims have been treading this path, making this pilgrimage for over a thousand years. So the book is about my pilgrimage, so it's in part a memoir, but it's also a guidebook for anyone thinking about the Camino de Santiago or anyone who knows they can't do it, but like would like to know what it's like to do the, a pilgrimage. What is it like to do a pilgrimage? <laughs> well, it depends on how strict you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there are 
Camino fundamentalists who have very strong ideas about how you must do the real Camino, the real pilgrimage. And then there are the liberals who think you don't have to be so strict. And then there's the people who really don't think it's a pilgrimage at all. It's really a long hike for them. And then there are people like me who think you can do your Camino however you want, however it makes you feel right to do your Camino. But I do believe it is a pilgrimage and it should be a pilgrimage. And we could maybe talk about that. But anyway, my, my book, this is one of the things it talks about was uh, my disagreement with the Camino fundamentalist, if I can call them that. <laughs> and, uh, and I was a little bit apprehensive when I wrote my book because it goes against most books on the Camino, which are stricter than I am in my Camino, in the sense of you must walk every step and you must carry everything you're going to use on your Camino on your back. No exceptions. I mean, that's really the fundamentalist, and I don't believe that. So, 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 so help me here, um, because I, I don't know one way or another, but I assume that this is a tradition of some kind, and the fundamentalists believe that the tradition, in order to honor the tradition, you have to do it the original way. Is that is that right? Sort of, kind of, but as I point out, it's not really true. So the, as I said, the Camino goes back to 822 AD. So imagine you're in, let's say, France in 822, and there's not much travel going on. If you want to take a trip, you really had, you could do a pilgrimage. So, the, I mean, the most famous one we've all heard about is uh, Canterbury uh, and the Canterbury Tales. And that was a group of pilgrims. Well, they weren't very religious. If you read the Canterbury Tales, they were not religious at all. At least the stories they tell around the campfire at night are not very religious. So, but anyway, they would go to their pilgrimage site. And back in the day, back in the, you know, the Middle Ages, the three big pilgrimage sites were Rome, where you go to the Vatican, Jerusalem, or Santiago de Compostela, which is this Camino that I'm talking about. And the reason it was famous was because it's the burial site of the Apostle St. James. And it was, the burial site was rediscovered in 822 AD, which started the modern, when I say modern, that started the current pilgrimage cycle. And starting immediately in 822, people from all over Europe started going, making their pilgrimage to Santiago. So um, the height of the pilgrimage was in the 1200s and 1300s. And then a number of factors, everything from the plague to war to eventually the, the Reformation uh, took a lot of people away from doing this pilgrimage, but still very, very famous people did the, the, the Camino. St. Francis of Assisi, you know, the saint who loved all the animals, he did the, the, the Camino. A number of European kings made Caminos. And that, and they had to go, you know, they essentially it was, it was penance. They were sent to, to, to do this pilgrimage as penance. Anyway, but starting in, you know, the 1400s, let's say, it gradually began declining in popularity. And so by the time I first heard about it, which was in 1970, basically 71, there were very few people doing the pilgrimage and they weren't walking, most of them, I'll tell you that. Like the one I heard about it from is the author James Michener, who you might remember. Oh, yes. 
he wrote a book called Iberia. And I read it when I was 21. And he has chapter 13, which is about the Camino de Santiago. And as soon as I read it, I said, oh boy, I want to do that. Well, it took me 45 years before I actually got to do it. But I never forgot about it, and I knew I wanted to do it. Now, when James Michener did it, his Camino, he didn't walk. Well, of course, nobody was walking. But nowadays, this group of very strict people has risen up who think you have to walk. Although there are actually three approved methods. You can get your certificate saying you've done the Camino by either walking, riding horseback, or bicycling. You can either, all those three ways are approved. Driving is not an approved way to do the Camino, riding a bus or whatever, that, those are not approved ways. Although, frankly, I think as long as you don't care about getting your certificate at the end, which says that you've done the Camino, you can do your Camino however you want. So a couple of questions for you. First of all, where the hell is this place? Okay, uh, Santiago de Compostela, which is the burial place of St. James, is in northwest Spain. So uh, it's not quite to the Atlantic Ocean, but it's pretty close to the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, in today's terms, it's an area that, that not that many tourists go to. In fact, northern Spain is not that much traveled. And the interesting thing is that the Camino, the revival of the Camino, since 1970, when I first heard about it until today, has been incredible. So um, anyway, traditionally, probably the most traveled route was what they call the French route. You'd be on, you know, on the other side of the Pyrenees in France, wherever you came from in Europe. And then you would cross the Pyrenees and walk across or ride your horse across northern Spain to Santiago. But if you're English, then you're going to, you know, come over in a boat and land and then come the rest of the way. Uh, if you're wherever, you know, um, let's say you're a Christian living in the Middle East. And again, you're going to come by boat for a good part of the way. But there are many different routes. So if you're in southern Spain, you have to come up through the whole of Spain to get there because it's in northern, quite northern Spain, northwest Spain. Well, and I want to ask about St. James. First of all, they found his grave in... 800 and something, uh, but, but he'd been, he'd been dead for 800 years, right? 750 years or so. And he was martyred, wasn't he? He was. So the story, and you can believe it or not, is that when the apostles were dispersed to all parts of the world to evangelize for Christ, St. James went to Spain and supposedly he was incredibly unsuccessful. He was unable to persuade the Spaniards or that, that they should become Christians. Of course, they were, it was a Roman territory and they were, you know, under Roman rule and they had their local chieftains too that the Romans fought against. So he was very unsuccessful and he was, he, supposedly he got very depressed and he was so depressed he wanted to give it all up and go home. Um, but supposedly the Virgin Mary appeared to him and said, don't stop, keep going, keep going. So eventually he managed to convert a very small number of people, let's, you know, in the neighborhood of 10 or 12. And after many years of trying, he, he did go home. So he went home and he had barely stepped off the boat into Palestine, into you know, where he'd come from. And King Herod grabbed him and beheaded him. So that was the end of the apostle St. James. 
But his disciples, he'd taken two of the people he'd managed to convert with him. They took his body, including his head, and put it on a boat and took it back to Spain. And so he was buried in Spain. I can imagine that conversation. King Herod, are you going to keep that, or can we have that part back? <laughs> yeah, poor St. James. I feel I feel badly for him, but of course he's uh, he was... Again, you know, there's so many, uh, you have to know your your biblical history. Protestants consider him the brother of, of Jesus. Catholics right. consider him the cousin or the relative of, of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was very close to Jesus and one of his uh, first disciples and one of, according to some people say, you know, the best loved of the disciples. Anyway, he didn't, he didn't, well, all of the, all of the uh, disciples had a bad time. Most of them, I think, you know, I'm not. A scholar on all of them, but I do know a lot of them got martyred. So. Well, I'll tell you, if if I have to go, if I have to be martyred, I would rather be uh, uh, beheaded than uh, crucified upside down like Peter was. Right. Um, so right. that would, yeah, that would be much, at least much more humane. But uh, so, so they took him back and they, and they uh, buried him in the north of Spain and, uh, and then they forgot about him. Yes, remember there's all kinds of invasions and things going okay. on at this time, you know, and um, so they they kind of just lost track of where he was buried. And um, again, there's all kinds of theories about what was going on, but supposedly uh, a bright star appeared in the sky. Now, does this sound familiar, this story, this bright star appears in the sky? I have no and, idea what you're talking about. And uh, the local guy saw it and he went and reported it to his bishop. And so the bishop went and explored and he found a grave with two side graves. And they were with headstones, of course, after 800 years, who knows, you know, that labeled them as being St. James and with the names of his two disciples. So the bishop immediately said, oh, we found St. James. And he wrote to the Pope and the Pope confirmed the discovery. So it was official from the Vatican that this was St. James and his burial place. Now, you can believe that or not, but that's the story. Well, but and, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because, you know, he, he, is a, he deserves to have a place of honor. And so the place of honor is that. And so now people can do a pilgrimage to that and right. uh, and uh, to honor him and his memory and what he, what he did. And and I think I think it's great. It, you know, at the end of the day, it's all it's all a matter of uh, of, you know, philosophy and what you believe and stuff It's not really a geographical thing, you know, kind of thing. So exactly. And, and this all occurred at a time when the Christian world needed a champion. And yeah. so the Spanish were trying to reconquer their territory from the from the Muslims. And there's, again, stories about St. James being seen by soldiers leading them into battle. Um, so he, they needed a saint, and they got their saint. And St. James is the patron saint of Spain. Well, let's see. Now that works because, and you know, if you if you're going to go into battle, you want to go in with a high degree of optimism. And how can you have better optimism if you have a saint on your side? Exactly. And then through time, so Saint James, this is very politically incorrect, and I apologize to any of your viewers, but it's the truth. He was called Santiago Matamoros, which is James Muslim killer. That's what he's been called. And then over time, he became Santiago Rojo Matos. You know, he kills the Reds. This is a way, way forward, you know, during the, 
the period of the dictator in this, the last century. Franco? Or, <laughs> or Santiago Mat, uh, in Matador, the killer of the Indians, you know, during the period they were killing Indians. So it just every, that he was be a, his image and his, what he was fighting against moved with the times, but originally he was Santiago Mataboros. Well, it's, you know, that's a really interesting story because that goes back 2000 years and, and, and stuff, but it's, it's a lot more fun to talk about your book and, and the places that you go. And so if you, is there like a starting point or can you start from any number of, any number of places? You can start any, from anywhere. The thing is, you're going to Santiago de Compostela. So basically, when you walk out your door, you're starting your pilgrimage. And, you know, there's funny stories about people who take that literally. And so they walk out their door in San Francisco and then have to walk to the airport or do walk to the airport. Of course, they can't walk across the ocean, so they have to take a plane. But, you know, they, they walk every step they can rather than driving to the airport. So what is the, what is the big deal about walking? Just out of I don't, you know, why, why is that more revered than, than driving a car there? Well, the people who are advocates believe that you use that time. You have a lot of quiet time. You have a lot of time for reflection as you're walking along. And you have to understand sometimes you're walking all by yourself in the middle of nowhere for hours a day. And so, yeah, you have plenty of time to think about things. So, you know, they make a distinction between who's a pilgrim versus who's a tourist. And uh, I don't necessarily agree because, you know, for me, walk, trudging along a path when you're hot and you're tired and all you're thinking about is why did I do this? Why did I decide to do this? Doesn't make me feel spiritual. What makes me feel spiritual is sitting in one of the magnificent cathedrals along the way and looking at the stained glass windows and thinking about all of the faith that went on all of those hundreds of years that made this all possible. So, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. And that's why I don't think there's just one way that to do to do the pilgrimage. So is there like uh, Motel 6 and stuff like that that you can stay at along the way? Or is it or how do you how do they spend their night when they're on this pilgrimage? So the, there are a series of, of what you could think of as hostels all along the way, which is your basic 20 people in bunk beds in one room, shared accommodations. And again, the fundamentalists say you have to travel that way. But there are also bed and breakfasts and small hotels all along the way. And remember, you know, if you imagine in the 1200s or 1300s, the Catholic Church supported this. So you didn't have cars. So it was what, you know, from one town to the next town would be more or less, how far can you walk in a day? And there would be something in every town. The Catholic Church built uh, places like nunneries and monasteries that could help the pilgrims. And, and so uh, stuff, little towns grew up all along the route. And those towns had a bad time after the pilgrimage went away, but they're in a model, modern revival with B&Bs being opened and restaurants and so forth. Now the COVID's hit the Camino hard, just like it's hit everything hard, but it's coming back. It's coming back. I went on a, not a walking, but a horseback pilgrimage in September last year. Now that would be fun. I would do that, except there's not a horse that wants to carry me. I can tell you that right now. So, uh, but if you, but did, now did you have to take care of your horse? Did you hire somebody to, 
to guide you and then bed the horses down and do all that kind of stuff? Yes. You have to, I mean, as far as I know, you really have to do it with an outfitter. And the outfitter supplies your horse That's what you and, call. and all that. Okay. Uh, it's just like if you go out west and you went on a camping trip. I mean, you're not, you don't have a horse that you can ferry from Seattle. or you, Most people don't. They, they get an outfitter who makes all the arrangements for them. It's the same thing. So if somebody wants to buy your book or find out more about it, they can go to uh, buyucitypress.com, right? That's correct. And there's a second book that I wanted to take some time to talk about because it's very intriguing. And it's uh, The uh, Baby with Three Families is the name of that book. And uh, Two Countries, One Promise, and an International Adoption Story. Where did you come across this story and why are you telling it? Well, um, the genesis of this was the fact that I adopted my son. And this is a long time ago. My son is 30 years old now, to give you an idea. He was five months old when we adopted him. So uh, at that time, we were told we had to do a training course for adoptive families, which we do. And the training course was very, very fervent about saying parents should tell their children from the from the beginning, that they're adopted. You don't want to hide that information. You don't want to have them, all of a sudden, when they're teenagers or in their 20s, find out they're adopted. That is a real shock. And they often feel betrayed and lied to and so forth. So I wanted, you know, I told my son from the beginning he was adopted, and I wanted to have a book to read to him about being adopted. And I looked around. I I was overseas at the time. I looked around. I couldn't find anything. I asked my mother to go to bookstores back home and see if she could find something. She couldn't find anything. So in the end, I wrote a little book for my son about his adoption. And it's very particular to him and to what happened with us and the whole adoption process. So, you know, I read it to him regularly as he was growing up. And when I was sure he was very firm in understanding that he was adopted and what adoption was about, I put it in a drawer and left it there. So fast forward, like I said, uh, you know, 25 years and we're in the middle of the, of the pandemic. I can't go anywhere to do research on my next book. I can't go even to a library to do research. I mean, you just there's nothing of it. You can't go. So I'm lying in bed thinking, okay, what can I do? What can I do? And I thought, well, I wonder if there's, you know, I wonder if that book is available now. So I started doing some research just online, like on Amazon. Still, to this day, there was no book like this book that didn't exist. There are books about adoption, but there are books that are like, oh, I don't know, a bear adopts a goose or a horse adopts a chicken. You know, they're just, they're based on animals, not, they're not about real people. And they almost always concentrate on just the adoptive mother and the, the child or the baby or, you know, the chicken or whatever it is, they, they, don't, they don't bring in all of the other people who were involved in an adoption. And, and, and I wanted a book that said, as it says to my baby, you don't have one family, you have three families. And you don't have one country, you have two countries. And that's something to be happy about, not sad about. And you have to... Uh, love your three families and they love you and you have to understand that that you have rights to two countries and your two countries want you to appreciate them too 
So uh, anyway, my book is quite unique in a, in a number of ways. Well, um, I wish that my mother-in-law had you had access to your book and that her parents had the um, uh, forward thinkingness to be uh, um, to let her know that she was adopted because it was she they they brought her home she, in 1930. Now in the 30s, the adoption was quite a bit different than it is today. In that um, um, this girl was in a home. She was 16 years old, and she had they take in those days they would take you out of school and they put you in a special school, and and so that you could bring the baby to term, and then somebody would come along, and if you had uh, I don't know five thousand dollars in your pocket, which is what my great or what her great grandfather had was some money, and then he got the, the papers and got to bring the baby home. They didn't tell her for a number of years. And then when they finally did tell her, it was she she took that to her grave and she died in her 80s as being I'm adopted. Nobody loves me. And it's so important that a book like yours comes out uh, and talks about th- not less than but more than you. You're lucky you were adopted. You got three families, not just two and that kind of thing. So I think that's great that you did that. And that's that's another point, actually. The, the, the these books are adorable. I got you know I, I want to encourage adoptive families to look into them, uh, and to buy buy them. They're they're a, a lovely little books. But that's a question they don't they don't address. You know why did my mother and my father give me up? Didn't they love me? So you know in a very child centric way, I try to address that question in in my book and. Uh, my mil- illustrator actually, I think, did a great job. There's one page where the biological mother is sitting there just thinking about, you know, what can I do? And she's imagining all the things she can't give her child. And so <laughs> the illustrator put in uh, a hamburger, uh, you know, and a, a candy bar, and I don't know, all kinds of things like that. And so, I mean, we're going back and forth across oceans. And I said, okay fine, but let's put some books in there too. And let's put a school in what she's imagining she can't give her child. But, but it's true. The children are probably going to think, you know, oh, I couldn't have had all these other things, toys and candy and cookies and I don't know. So, but it was, it's a, it tries to make the point to the child that the mother was thinking about the best interest of him or her, not, uh, it wasn't a question of not loving the child. It is actually the reverse, which is that that is the, in my opinion, that's one of the ultimate acts of love is to give something that you love dearly up so that it can lead a better life and have have the opportunities that a 16 year old girl in 1930 was never a single was never going to have the opportunity to take care of her the way that the engineer who had five grand in his pocket could and uh, she went to live with him. But, you know, it's it's so that's that's I think that's an important story to tell the kids is that by and large, the the adoptive mother or the not the adoptive, but the one who's giving the, the child away, they're doing it out of love, I think, primarily, don't you think? I do. I do. And in fact, my book is dedicated to my son to all the people who help in the adoption process, like social workers and judges and so forth. But most of all, it's to the biological mothers who 
I say, you know, you're not forgotten. The people who have the who have a son or a daughter, thanks to your choice, respect you. Yes. And and hopefully down the way, now it wasn't the way it worked for my mother-in-law, but hopefully down the way that uh, that and the, the your son. Well, I got to ask you: Has your son had an opportunity to meet his biological mother? Is she still with us? Well, that is the one promise. Which you know, the title is "The Baby with Three Families, Two Countries, and One Promise." The one promise was a promise that I made to my son that he would get to know his home country. So when he was a, a young teenager. I went back to work in Colombia for a second time, which is where he was from, born. And he got two years to experience his home country. And uh, we went back to the adoption center from which he was adopted. And um, he really had no desire to meet her. And so I didn't pursue that. But he knows the avenue is open to him later on in life if he decides to do that. You know, one interesting development of all this is that nowadays, because of DNA, it's really impossible to keep all these secrets anyway. People are going to find out. They do find out. People are finding out they're adopted. People are finding their their relatives, their biological relatives, which is, you know, if they want to find them, good for them. Great. Do it. So to tell you a real quick story about DNA that I, 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 one of the best things about dna is there was, there was a guy that i knew that was kind of weird that that he was um he was a manager of a restaurant just a real small place and and he had a drug problem and he was a little nuts and stuff well well i lost track of him and uh, years later i was watching the news and it was uh, this guy is was being led out of the courtroom and it was this guy because what had happened was he was targeted by the FBI for a cold case, murder case. And so they sent him an, uh, a, uh, a winning law or a winning ticket to a All you have to do is to, is to, is to sign it and send it back. Well, he did. He licked the envelope and they pulled DNA off of the envelope and then they matched his DNA to the murder. And uh, so I think, you know, DNA is a really good thing. I think that's, that's just super the way that's coming down. Well, I'm afraid, I think the various uh, miscreants who are getting caught with their DNA might have a different opinion, but uh, I'm talking, and even uh, biological mothers who, for whatever reason, didn't want to their children to find out who they were, are, are getting a rude awakening. But there are other cases, much happier cases, where people are being reunited with people they wanted to be reunited with. Uh, well, for whatever reason, they're separated, and but they're getting a chance to know each other later in life, thanks to DNA. Which which is really cool because we can, you know, it's I think it's healthy for the adopted uh, child to to at, at least get what they want. If he doesn't want to know, that's fine. But if he does and can can find out, that would be because he could, he could like your your book says it could create an entire another family for him. Well, the, the three families in, in my book refer to the biological family or mother, the foster family. Most adopted children go through a foster family before they get to their final family. And then, the, you know, the, the adopting family. So they all mostly have some have many more than three families, depending on how many foster families they pass through. But one thing I wanted to say, just so a few, your viewers understand, 
the book that you're going to see is not about my son uh, because he, uh, I had to take what I wrote for him and generalize it and making it universal, basically, so that it's true for anyone. And uh, one of the things I think that adoptive families should do is take my book and the change the name of the characters and change the country. You know, when you're reading to a small child, they can't read those things. They don't know that that word is James or Kevin or whatever it is. So they can just substitute their own circumstances and make the book their own. And I hope they'll do that. That's a, that's a really good idea. And, and, and make it your own, make it, make it something that you can, you can read to your child and you, you read it to you, to your son for years, didn't you? I did. I did. And, and it, you know, it it is, a story. Um, it's, you know, just your child a chance to ask questions like, you know, you talk about a visa, you know, you have to go to the embassy and get a visa. You can't just take this baby home with you. You have to get the documentation. So, well, what's a visa? You know, what's an embassy? That's, I mean, that's my sphere. So, of course, I had to make sure I mentioned the embassy and the visa, but it's true for, you know, what's this, what's this socially? Who are these other people? Why are they, you know, why are they doing this? Just to get some chance to talk with your child about all this, these things. And again, to make the child realize, you know, one of my favorite images in the, in the book, again, the, the illustrator came up with this, it's five hands supporting the baby. There are many, many hands involved in an adoption, not just a mom and a child, unless you're a chicken, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's really cool because it is, it is a village and, uh, that it, and it takes to raise a child and, and stuff. So I, I, think, I think that's awesome. Who's your illustrator? Um, he is actually a Sri Lankan. So as I said, I went across many, many uh, oceans to find him. And communication as we were working on the book together wasn't always easy because he's not a native English speaker. So, you know, like I, I said, I'd say, mm, can we do this? Can we do that? Hoping he'll understand what I want. But I think he did a fabulous job, really. I love the illustrations uh, in my book. Uh, if you've seen the cover, I have a, an old copy here. I'll put it up. It's very pink, which is funny because it's a it's a book about a boy child. Uh, but I, he's Sri Lankan. What does he know? I mean, pink is fine and looks good to me. I mean, the pages are very colorful and there are lots of blue pages and green pages and all kinds of pages. So I, it was it was an interesting collaboration to get the illustrations that I thought worked. As I guess we all, you know, as writers, you have a real firm idea in your head of what things are supposed to look like but the illustrator doesn't normally he doesn't have access to that he's, he's not in your head that's right so you're trying to convey to him okay this is okay but not that like for my first book for example um it has a beautiful cover i think and um i knew what i wanted i wanted a mosaic like cover and i got a a, a spanish illustrator to work on it and so he came back with a, I thought, a great design, and he suggested about six photographs to plug into the design. And I looked at him and I said, okay, well, two of them are okay, but not the other four. So then we had, I mean, we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, it, it was interesting because I, I wanted a food photo on the front. And uh, he came up with all these things that, in my mind, just didn't work. And I wanted to pay, yeah, that's what I wanted. And well, so, and you're entitled. You can, you can, uh, if you're paying the bill, you get, to, you get to decide. I imagine by the end of it, he was like, Cone caramba. 
I that's yeah, just, like uh, exactly. He said, "Okay, all right, you win. You can have your paella on the cover." But you know, I knew I knew some things I wanted. I wanted the stained glass windows from the Leon Cathedral, which are so magnificent. I wanted a photo of them, and I wanted a photo of alternate means of transportation, like a bus and so forth. So anyway, we worked it out between us. But it takes back and forth to to get you know what the illustrator as a professional feels comfortable with and what you as the writer want to have. Oh, exactly. And by the way, I've got something new I'm going to show people right now. And that is, Hey, look at that. Does that look familiar? Oh yeah. That's my website. That's your website. And, uh, some of the, some of the, uh, uh, shopping things and, and you've got Christmas books and here's the, uh, the baby in three families book is right there. That's, right. that's that really is pretty. And then savoring the Camino Santiago is see, I said that better. Aren't you happy? So, and short stories. You've done you've done a lot of you've done a lot of writing. What do, what motivates you? Why did you want to write so much? Uh, I've always been a writer. I thought when I was younger that I was going to be a writer full time, like maybe a journalist or a real writer. But, you know, life takes its turns, and I ended up going into the Foreign Service. Uh, I never thought I could survive as a starving artist. I, I, need, I needed to have some security. I mean, I read about these Joseph Conrad writing by candlelight after working 12 hours a day. I, that's, I just couldn't do that. So I had my career, and the thing about my career was I was writing every day. But it's a different kind of writing. It was a memoranda or speeches for the ambassador or briefing papers or reports back to Washington on what was happening in whatever country I was stationed in. But it wasn't uh, creative in the sense, you know, it wasn't fictitious or it wasn't out of my brain. It was things that I was tasked to do. So I did that for 33 years. And then when I finally retired. I said, okay, I'm going to go back to my original desire, which is to be a writer. And thank goodness, now I can do it. Now, if you're just tuning into this, the, when we started at the top, that's how I got sidetracked was with, we were starting to talk about your writing in your book and but you spent 33 years in the foreign service. And so we started talking about that and that took the entire rest of the time. So if you want to go review that, you can. It's in the first episode that uh, that we did with uh, Julie, and uh, and you could go back and listen to that, and then then skip forward and listen to this one as well. So, right. So you know the thing is um, to tell the truth. As a writer, you you do better. You you make more money, and you have more followers if you stick to a genre, like you're a mystery writer, or you're a thriller writer, or you're a sci-fi writer. Well, you know, I have one nonfiction travel book and I have one fictional children's book. So I'm not working in a genre, but the thread that connects them is that they both are international. You know, they have a foreign part to them. Uh, so that's that, and that is my genre, travel and international. Yeah, and I know that 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 according to my my executive producer is going to kill me, but uh, I know that according to the rules that you're supposed to niche down into your genre and it's got to be narrow so that people can expect this and all of that. But at the same time, I believe that if somebody needs to find that book, the baby with three families, they will find that book. 
because it'll be something that they need and and will help them. And I, I'm I'm convinced of that. How about you? No, I nowadays with um, the decline of traditional publishing, and I do believe it is declining, just like newspapers have declined. And the move towards a lot more indie publishing, which is what I am, I'm an indie, indie, indie publisher. Um, that's great. If you want to get a book published, there's a lot less gatekeepers between you and getting a published book. You can find someone to help you publish your book or publish it through an indie like me or uh, a small press. So that's, that's the positive side. The negative side is nobody is marketing authors like they used to. Nope. You know, there's no book tours like there used to be. There's no huge marketing campaigns. So authors have to do their own marketing. And uh, because of COVID, I blame it on COVID, although there's lots of reasons. Marketing is hard. And it's really hard when you can't get out and talk to audiences and sell your book there. So same, you have- the same thing that's going on with podcasting. There are so many podcasts out there. Some are better than others, and uh, but it's hard to get, you know, it's hard to get noticed. And uh, but that's why you're here, so that I can help you get noticed. Exactly. And so I feel an obligation, particularly for my book about adoption, to do more work to get it in front of adoptive audiences. Uh, there are organizations that work on adoption, and I want to try to get closer to them than I have been. Uh, Camino, there's, you know, there's a bonanza of Camino books nowadays because uh, because of the popularity like brought about by the, the movie The Way uh, with Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez and other things. It's just exploded in popularity. So there's a lot of books around about the Camino. None like mine again, because none is a combination memoir and guidebook. But um, not you know they're not so much about adoption books like there's still very few on the market it's amazing yeah well yeah. it's not it's not a, a, a wildly popular subject because it's very painful for a lot of folks well it's a niche of a niche i guess is what it comes down to you know yeah but as you can see on your screen you can see the book and you can see so now you got an uh, imprint in your brain about what the book looks like so now you can go find it and uh you can go to amazon uh, uh julie um, um, Connor is the author. <laughs> See, I escaped that one. Jen Owen Alley. Jen Owen, never mind. Jen uh, <laughs> you can do it, Kevin. I know you can. <laughs> <laughs> there are some things. So anyway, go there, go to her website, which is bayoucitypress.com, and you can get all the information you need about everything that she's done. And which would which would be great fun. It's been great fun talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. We have to get you to he- to down to Houston or to Louisiana, my home state. Bayou, Bayou City Press. Bayou. What did I say? Bayou. <laughs> I don't know. I, well, see, I'm from Seattle. We don't do anything. We we're by the bay. We're, we're not by the bayou. Needle behind you in your graphics. So yeah, we got to get you down here to Texas. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I was in Louisiana one time, just a real quick story. I was playing golf. It was a weekend because I was I was there on business, but I had to stay for the weekend. And I was there with a couple of local guys. And uh, and, and the, the the golf course was literally cut out of the bayou. And uh, um, so I'm, we're playing along, and I tee the ball off, and it, it, it slices into the woods. Now, in, where I come from, 
If it slices into the woods, it's not a big deal. You just go into the woods, you get it, and you bring it back out. And so I started to walk towards the uh, the uh, area where the ball went into, and one of the locals guy, one of the local guys said, "You know, if I was you, I wouldn't go in there." Just, just really? He said, "Oh yeah, there's there's bad stuff in there. You don't want to go in there at all." And I said, okay, well, I'll get another ball out and, and stuff. But it was, you know, it, I'm from a different part of the country. We we don't worry about stuff like that. But down in, in Louisiana, nope, they don't go in there. It's a bad place to be. So That's where um, I grew up. So and they were right. You don't want to go in those woods. Well, I noticed that it made you laugh. It brought you back some of your some of your, your youth. It's like, no, no, the one thing you don't do is to go into the bayou because you may, may not come out of there alive. My, my next oldest brother used to catch baby alligators right across the levee from our house. Jeez, oh, that's true. I know I can believe it. My my grandfather, my uh, father in law, used to tell me about they they lived in Florida and, and uh, there was an, a resident alligator that lived under their dock. Um, you know, they said, "Oh, we didn't have to worry about him. He wasn't." It's like, okay, well, fine. I'm moving. I would leave. I'm going back to Washington now. So we don't have any of that stuff, so it's it's very nice. But uh, Julie, thank you so much for being here. Kevin, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and you have an open invitation to Houston. Absolutely. I, I need to come down there. If they, by the way, if there's anything that you would like to add right now, please do to, and tell our audience about anything you'd like them to know. Well, I guess I would just like to say that think of authors as your friends, and authors are going through a tough time right now. <laughs> they are, like podcasters. I'm glad Kevin threw that in, or journalists. The world is realigning in many different ways, and this is one of them. Publishing is one of them. So I'm thrilled. I've got my two books out there. Well, and uh, go get them. The one is The Baby and with Three Families, and the other book is, she's going to tell you what that is right now, because I'm looking for it. Savoring uh, the Camino de Santiago. Learn about the pilgrimage of uh, Cam, Camino, Cam, never mind. Santiago, Camino de Santiago. And uh, Julie's been our guest, and then uh, go to her website, which is buyucitypress.com. Uh, so, you got it, Kevin. I see. I can only say it if I use a Southern accent. So, I don't know. so <laughs> maybe I, that's your second calling to be an actor. As uh, matter of fact, I used to be years ago when I was a youngster. Um, so, but anyway, Julie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kevin, and thanks to your listeners for sharing in this conversation. Indeed, stay right where you are. I'll be right back. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.